Okay. Right, so um, if you can hear me out there, you want to get yourselves your coffee. We're about to, to start. I introduced myself earlier, Jeremy, one of the, the leaders here at Real Life Church. I'm married to Becky. Um, unlike me, she is amazing. She is, um, she's been really patient. I remember when, um, when I first met her and I was thinking this could potentially be my wife. I had to let her know that she was going to be in for a bit of a ride if she decided to, to marry me. And I said, look, I really feel that God's called me um, to planting churches, and we're probably going to be traveling around a lot. And um, at the time, she was a young girl. She was, she was 18. She'd just finished school. She was in her first year at university studying social work. And uh, she had a massive dream of one day going to America and spending time um, on, a, on a horse ranch. She loved horses, and she, she gave that all up for me, and God, I mean, but she gave that up, and, and she's never regretted that. She's, <laughs> not because I'm so amazing, but because she is, <laughs> she's never regretted giving that up. She gave everything to, to be with me and to, to follow what I believe God is calling us to do as a family, and we have three children, Joel, who's just turned 17, he's just finished his first year of A-levels and is starting to think about university. Caitlin, who is 15, she is in yet, well, she's finished with year 10, she's going into year 11 and will be writing her GCSE exams next year. And Isaac, who is um, eight and is moving up into year four, um, and he's our, our little delight. And the truth is that this week they've all been at New Day, the whole lot of them, and I've been sitting at home. For those of you that know me, that's probably as close to hell, the side of eternity, that I could experience. It's, it's not my natural place. But uh, ironically, uh, I had a conversation with Stu halfway through the week, and he was with 8,000 young people at New Day. Um, so I felt better about my situation. So they're all at New Day. Except Joel, who's uh, just come back, I had to pick him up uh, yesterday for halfway because he's developed tonsillitis, so he's at home recovering from that. Um, so yeah, I struggled. I was climbing the walls this week, I must tell you. I, I was finding people to talk to, even if they weren't there, and, and that can be dangerous. Um, and the truth is, for me, I need connection. I desperately need connection. And you know what? Even those of you, I know... I'm not the same as everyone, but even those of you that are the most introverted need connection. You need some form of connection. Um, and that's really what we're going to be looking at today in, in, in our preach. This is what the psalm is about, but in a real true sense, connection with the Almighty and connection with His people. But before we do that, there's, always, there's been an opportunity throughout this whole sermon series of Life's Plays, Playlist to, to hear from some of the people that are leading different parts of Real Life Church and get to know them a little better. And so we've got Hannah Tipper with us today, and Hannah's going to share her playlist with us. If you want to take this down with you afterwards. Good morning, everybody. Um, so I'm Hannah. Uh, for people that don't know me, I'm married to Adrian, and we have two boys, Nick and Rory, who are the two dark-haired boys that you can generally see running at the back with me, sort of scurrying behind them. 
Um, at church, I lead a life group with Mark Parsons. We're the Tipsons, as we call ourselves. Uh, and I also co-lead a kids' work team with Ben Senior. Um, we co-lead in the year four to six age group. None of those men that I've just mentioned are here now, so I think I can safely say that. I can't, sometimes feel like I have three husbands that I sort of get to organise <laughs> on, a, on a regular basis. And we'll leave that there. Um, so... Um, um, Music. I, I love music. Um, Matt has already warned Jeremy that I could be here for a while because I just like to surround myself completely with music, all sorts of different music. So I'll try and keep this brief, but I could be, <laughs> I could be a while. So I, I was very fortunate to grow up in two schools where the tradition of music was really strong. I was fortunate as a teenager to play at the Royal Albert Hall as part of my school band, and that has really fostered in me a love of all different kinds of music, in particular um, film music. So we played a lot of um, John Williams. There's a debate constantly going on in our house as to whether John Williams or Hans Zimmer is the better composer. For anyone that's interested, it's obviously Williams. Um, and that has just kind of then continued. Uh, my dad was a big fan of music. I grew up with um, Bob Dylan, Cat Stevens, all of that kind of music in the house. And now I just I feel a real... Um, desire to surround my boys with music and to, to have music on as much as we can, all sorts of different music, to introduce them to, to different types of music in the house. I, I Generally, if I'm on my own, I would much rather have music on than have the TV on, for example. Um, I listen to the radio a lot. Um, in particular, um, I, I quite like Radio 4, and actually my, um, I'd said to Matt that there would be a guilty pleasure in here, and my guilty pleasure, it might surprise you, is I really, really like The Archers. <laughs> Massive Archers fan. Um, not so much as I don't get to listen to it as much as I would like to anymore. Um, but what do I listen to at the moment? I went back to our Spotify playlist and just had a look at the sort of things that we've been listening to over the last few weeks. Um, lots of nursery rhymes, you might imagine. Um, lots of worship music. I've, um, I've really got into worship music since I've been here at Real Life Church, um, Adrian said to me yesterday, you're, you're, that, that Laura Diggle came up on my, uh, on my YouTube. So yeah, I like Lauren Daigle. Um, and, but I also like new music. I like to, to find new things. I've got a colleague at work who um, keeps me relevant. So he, he recommends things to me on a regular basis. So my, my things that I'm listening to at the moment are, um, I really like Freya Ridings. Um, I like... Um, um, Christine and the Queens so I, I do try to sort of keep up to date and, and listen to, to some new stuff as well um, and so I guess in terms of um, sort of leaving you without being up here for, for hours and hours I, I thought I would um, share my three favourite albums of all time and my favourite live act um, so um, just to give you a bit of a taste of just how eclectic my music taste is so my three favourite albums are um, Paul Simon's Graceland um, Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pill, and um, Nora Jones, Come Away With Me. Um, and my favourite live act, I recently um, just achieved an absolute life ambition. I can now die and go to heaven, because about a month ago, I went to see Bon Jovi. <laughs> I'll take that with That's really good, because sometimes I feel old. And um, Hannah, thank you for listing three albums that I like. Appreciated. Um, so yeah, let's, let's pray. We always say that, that um, our authority here at Real Life Church is the Word of God, and um, that's true. So let's, just before we, we get into the text and read the text, let's pray and submit ourselves to, to God's Word. So Lord God, I just want to 
thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you've revealed yourself to us in your Son, and that you've revealed him and your plan through your word. And Lord, right now we, we yield ourselves, we submit ourselves, we, we submit ourselves from our own authority or sense of autonomy, we submit our opinions, our views and our beliefs, and we yield to your word and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you bring your words to life in our mind and our heart to mold us more and more into your image, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's, let's read the text together. I'm going to move across a little bit. I know it's weird, but I know you're not going to be able to read. So if you've got your Bibles, it's Psalm 133. It's a, a, song, a psalm that was written by David and was probably written um, shortly after his inauguration as a, a sort of rejoicing, a, an expression of the happiness he felt to see um, the unity of Israel as they had um, come together under his kingship after being fractured for such a long time under, under Saul. Have I, I've, I've missed a whole bit. I'll come back to the bit. I'll come back to the bit. So let's read it. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Okay, so if we can skip back then. Remember the the structure um, of the Psalms of Ascent. Remember that these were a collection of Psalms that were used as Israel um, traveled pilgrimed to Jerusalem for, for three festivals a year, and um, it was a collection of psalms that was broken up into, into uh, three sets of four psalms each, and it kind of ran through this narrative on a, a cycle, starting off with a situation of stress, and then the, the second psalm would be about the Lord's power to deliver His people from that situation, and then the, the third would be about God's power to bring those pilgrims home to Jerusalem and to the the temple where they can be in the presence of God. And that would go on four times, and then we'd go into three psalms, and we're in the second of the three psalms that are all about God's holy city, Zion. And not God's city as it was or as it is now, but as it it should be in, in terms of the promise that God has made about what Zion should be. And we're in the second of those, and we're looking at, at unity. And um, because of that, I've chosen a, a particular song to, to mark that. And um, I'm wondering if you'll be able to guess what that song is. It should be on the next click. It's uh, the sounds of silence. <laughs> Not working. Okay. All right. Boom, boom, boom. Aye, boom, boom, boom. Got it? You should have. It's probably one of the most recognizable songs of all time. We all stand together. Paul Simon. 
Rupert made a... Rupert appeared in the, the video. It was in um, 1984. It went to number three in the charts. And chronologically, in terms of Paul Simon's songs, No More Lonely Nights came before it. And Spies Like Us came after that. It's a Paul McCartney song. Did I not say that? Paul Simon, because I... Uh, sounds of silence. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, Paul McCartney. Absolutely. Possibly the weirdest pop song of the 80s. Um, but easily one of the most identifiable. So, unity. What on earth can we say about unity other than it seems like a fairly simple concept to grasp? It's not hard to imagine that it's a a, a good thing, Um, but with a a bit of life experience, and for most of us, we'll realize that unity is not simple, and it's certainly not easy to achieve. In fact, as my opening gambit, I'd like to say that true unity is impossible to achieve, without God, that is. Um, We live in a, a country that right now is struggling as we speak with deep fractures based on politics, religion, commerce. And our world is, is no better. The generations that should be benefiting from being more connected than any other generation before them are even more lonely and isolated and have been, more, been involved in more polarizing conversations than we've ever seen in history. Facebook Google, Instagram, Snapchat, and all the other services that started with the very good idea of bringing the world closer together are effectively driving us further and further apart. And I don't think that I can put too strong an emphasis on on how pervasive this issue is or how dangerous it is to us as a society, not just in a global sense, but, but in a very local sense. There are people that live right next to each other and have two completely different views of the world fed to them by their social media channels. And that completely fractures society. However, when you dig into history, it's very evident that even in the past, unity has, has been a very, very rare thing. Even in the church, we see how time and time again, she's ravaged by fracture, dissent, and disagreement. And then we read the Bible, and we see the same pattern that is very, very clear from the, the very beginning. God creates man, and it's good, and man rebels against God. The first two brothers of the Bible, Cain and Abel, instead of getting along well, end up killing. Cain kills Abel. It ends in death and fracture. And the pattern continues until pretty much everyone you read about in the Bible is in some way broken, um, disconnected, not unified. So unity is, is very difficult to achieve. On top of that... Not all unity, without exception, is thought to be a good thing from a a Christian perspective. I know here David says, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. But he has a specific thing in mind. A lot of the things that we see in our world that are are sold as unity are not good from, from a Christian perspective. For example, the first human attempt to regain godlike unity was the building of the Tower of Babel. And God saw that as idolatry and threw the nation into confusion by changing their languages. And ever since then, 
Mankind has attempted to achieve a human-centered form, type of unity. Even dictatorships give us a, a sort of unity, but the wickedness of these regimes cannot be denied, and the, the claim of it achieving unity can't justify the means. The church is often guilty of trying to achieve unity at the expense of higher values. Sometimes we've imposed external expectations on people to bring them into uniformity. Sometimes we've, we've watered down our message in an attempt to be more inclusive or accommodating. We are called to be peacemakers, but not to be liars in order to achieve peace. Rather, we are called to speak the truth in love so that we can all grow up into true unity. At least that's what Paul encourages the Ephesians to do in Ephesians 4, verses 15 to 16. The sort of unity that the church wants is, is the sort that is Christ-centric. It's focused around the truth of the gospel. So I guess what we need to do to help us through this, this talk is, is to distinguish between true unity and this counterfeit version which I've been talking about. Perhaps we can just call that counterfeit truth uniformity. Either an external or internally imposed need to conform to a human-centric ideal or philosophy or behavior so as not to offend or to, to be isolated or worse. Whereas actual unity is, is oneness, not just externally, but oneness of mind and heart around the truth. That's what I believe David had in mind. That's what I believe Jesus had in mind, and that's what I believe Paul had in mind when they spoke about unity, oneness of mind and heart around the truth. And this true unity should not just be contrasted with uniformity, but should be upheld as a much-needed value in our fractured society, even if when we look at history, we see that this side of eternity, it'll be really hard to achieve that. It still needs to be upheld as a vitally important value to our society. Now, Psalm 133 doesn't go into this kind of nuanced detail about why it's so hard to achieve unity. Rather, what David is doing is he's celebrating. He's celebrating the achievement of unity. But if we, as a congregation reading his words, are to truly understand what he is celebrating and how it directs us to achieve the beauty of true unity, it's really important for us to understand how hard it is for humans to follow where the psalm is pointing. So the rest of the preach, I'm going to just break that very short psalm into three pieces, and we're going to look at it and look for three additional points to the two I've just made. And the first is from verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. The word pleasant is used here not is, is used here because, sorry, because unity is pleasurable as opposed to, oh, it's nice. You know, like, it's a pleasant day. It's not that kind of pleasant. It's not like, well, it's, it's, it's not bad. It's like it brings pleasure. It, it elicits positive emotions, and those positive emotions counter your tendency to run from unity, thinking that the fun is elsewhere. 
And when we use pleasure in this context, it maybe kind of brings up some pictures for you. Because in this day and age, pleasure can mean an experience that is morally wrong, as well as one that is good. In fact, many would believe that satisfying pleasure comes from things that are bad. But the truth is that the devil can't create any pleasures of his own. He can only corrupt pleasures that God has already created. So in contrast to this lie that pleasure comes from things that are bad, David is making a very clear point in verse 1 that true unity gives pleasure. And that's really important. That's a really important place for us to start as a, as a local congregation, as members of God's church here in the United Kingdom, and as members of God's church that represent His image to the people around us. What he is saying is that pleasure in laying down yourself for the sake of unity is greater than the pleasure promised by pursuing any self-driven assertiveness or self-promotion at the expense of others. This psalm may have, as I said earlier, been written to celebrate the unity that David experienced when he was crowned king and all of those tribes of Israel gathered to him as one after being divided for so long under Saul. But understand this, for them to gather together as one took humility. Some would need to play second fiddle for the sake of unity. And today, for you guys, maybe there's someone with whom you need to find unity. Perhaps there's, there's someone that you need to work together with, but you're finding it really hard because you can't stop the feeling that it's not worth playing second fiddle. David is promising you a pleasure in unity that makes humility worth it. It's worth it. Leonard Bernstein, we were talking about music earlier, Leonard Bernstein was asked um, what the hardest position in the orchestra was to fill, and his answer was second fiddle. To play that part requires a significant amount of skill, like great skill, and also a willingness to be relatively obscure. Yet without the contribution of the second fiddle and all the other second chairs in the orchestra, the resulting sound would not be harmonious. It would not be nearly as good as it should be if it wasn't for those second chairs. It's worth it to play second fiddle. There is pleasure in unity. A beautiful harmony. So there's pleasure in unity. And unity is partly achieved by a willingness to put yourself second. But I've already hinted as well that human-centric unity is almost always bad, almost always destined to fail. The next verse and a half shows us where Christ-centered unity actually comes from, where the desire for unity in your heart comes from in the first place. It's uh, verse 2 and the first half of verse 3. This unity is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, I don't know about you, but... Immediately, these images don't bring 
pleasurable pictures to mind for me. Now, how many of you like, like meat, like steak, perhaps? Yeah, okay, well, there's one or two, okay. I love steak, and there's a secret to making a really good steak. Well, there's a few secrets. The one secret is have a really hot pan or a really hot fire. You need to cook that steak super quick. You need to seal the juices in, otherwise it'll get dry and chewy. There's another secret to it. You need to marinate it well, not over-marinate it. And a good marinade includes, as far as I'm concerned, soy sauce, and it includes olive oil and a whole bunch of other bits and pieces. But I've marinated a lot of steaks in my life, and as much as I enjoy eating them, I hate washing my hands afterwards because that oil just does not come off. And you know what? The oil doesn't come off. The smell doesn't go away for days. For days. Just imagine, as you see in this image, oil all over you. Just imagine trying to get all of that off. And what about dew? Sleeping under the stars sounds lovely until the dew sets in. And then you're soaking wet from head to toe and freezing and the sun won't rise. It's not pleasant. Believe me, it's not a pleasant experience. So um, forget your tent one day and then you'll be able to understand what I mean. However, we should be very, very careful not to bring our experiences to these images. I think we need to assume that David had pleasurable images in mind when he wrote these, these down, and we need to look for that. And so this first image <clears throat> is referring to, to Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother, and it's referring to his consecration as a high priest, which is described in Exodus. The oil was a sign of God's ordaining of Aaron. This wasn't just man ordaining him or setting him apart, but God setting Aaron apart as a high priest for Israel. And the second image refers to Mount Hermon, which is the highest mountain in Israel. It's about 9,000-odd feet, and it's cool, and it's often snow-capped, and it often has dew on its lower, lower um, slopes under the, the snow line. And it also describes Mount Zion, which is a, still a mountain, but far lower, about 2,000 feet. And it's in the south of the kingdom, and it's far more arid. So it's, just, it's got these two descriptions, and it's really important to understand that these two images are best understood when you look at this repeating refrain of running down, running down, and then falls on. The oil is a sign of God's anointing. The dew comes from God, from above. There is the additional symbolism that we can obviously see, that there is one high priest for all of Israel, not two or three, there's one, and that symbolizes unity. And in the picture of Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon being in the northern kingdom and Zion in the southern kingdom, but the Jews falling from Mount Hermon onto Zion, this can't actually literally happen in reality. This is a picture of unity, of Mount Hermon and Mount Zion working together and the the refreshing dew of Mount Hermon falling upon Mount Zion and bringing life in all of its fullness to Mount Zion. It's a picture of a unified nation of Israel. And you know what? This language would not have been missed by the pilgrims on their way to the temple because as we've been saying, they were ascending. 
They were ascending up into Jerusalem, and then they were ascending up into the temple. And as they were ascending, they were singing these words, down, down, down. As we climb up to God, He is pouring down, anointing and refreshing. Unity comes from God. Unity is not something we, uh, we achieve. It's, it's something that comes down to us. It descends from God. Remember that contrast, uniformity versus unity? Uniformity is a horizontal attempt to squeeze people into getting along together, even though they have very little in common. Unity is not manufactured. It's poured down from on high. Paul makes the same point when he advocates for the unity that exists between Jews and Gentiles, not by appealing to what they have to give up in order to get along, but to what they have in common as Christians. In Ephesians 1, Paul praises God for all that he's done for his people. And then in chapter 2, he describes what God has done in the context of God's grace through Jesus Christ, through faith, not by works. And then in the second half of chapter 2, Paul emphasizes that the unity God's people experience is achieved through focusing on the fact that we are one in Christ, in Him. So when Christians are not acting in a unified way, what they need to do is remember that they are one. They they do they do sorry they don't need to manufacture a horizontal uniformity but they need to recognize anew their vertical and therefore horizontal unity in Christ and this is what Jesus prayed in John 17 he prayed may they be one as you and i are one may my people be one as you, Father, and me, Jesus, are one. Now, Christian unity is not just a reflection. It's not just a reflection of the Trinity. It's an expression of the unity of the Trinity. We actually participate in the unity of the Trinity when we are unified. So if you wish to be one... You need to be one with Christ through faith in Him. And if you, as a Christian, are finding that you are struggling to be unified with another believer, the approach to take is to renew your devotion to Christ. And this is where things get hair-raising for me. Because I hear a lot of people say, you know what, a sermon is not a sermon unless there's some relevant, easy way of applying that sermon to my day-to-day life. And so we spend a little bit of time preaching about the Word, and then we get into Self-Help 101, which could come from Tony Robbins or any other um, positive-speaking type speaker. Almost always, the application of the Word is to go back to the Word. When we go, okay, I need a really good technique. If I'm struggling with unity with a fellow Christian, give me three steps to make that relationship better. I'm going to give you those three steps right now. You need to spend more time with Christ. I just counted that three as though it was three. You need to spend more time with Christ. That is the secret. 
If you spend more time trying to be unified, all you're going to end up doing is trying to find ways of conforming or compromising or finding a place to agree to disagree. All of these things are temporary, and they're going to disappoint you in the end. If you find it difficult to be unified with another believer, the approach to take is to renew your devotion to Christ. Do that, and your disagreements will seem petty in a few days. Daily prayer, Bible reading, worship. Because to be one with each other, we need to be one with Him. If we don't have a strong relationship with our Savior, we are never going to have a strong relationship with our brothers and sisters. So seek out unity because it is pleasurable. Find unity not in horizontal uniformity, but coming down from God and originating in the unity of the Trinity. And then finally, David goes on to the blessing of unity in the the second half of verse 3. For there... The Lord has commanded the blessing. What is this blessing? Life forevermore. There's a promise of eternal life. But for most of us, when we think of eternal life, all we can sort of fathom is that we will never cease to be conscious or aware. We'll be eternally conscious. What we don't understand is that the word here that is translated forevermore means so much more than just everlasting consciousness. It means life in all of its fullness to the greatest expanse in terms of time and quality and is most often used to describe how gratifying life in God's presence is. It's not an eternal sentence. It's an eternal blessing. And... I mean, I had this conversation earlier this morning. Um, I have it very often with people that don't believe, and they bring it up as an objection. I don't really want to go to heaven because the idea of heaven being in God's presence for eternity, singing songs, really just sounds like, ugh. I think I might be tired after an hour, never mind eternity. I mean, I know Matt Redman had great intentions when he said I could sing of your love forever, and, and I'd like to be able to sing of his love forever, but... Really, if I say I'm going to sing of his love forever, forever, I might feel like my brain's going to ooze out my ear. And the the thing is, it's just so hard to illustrate, isn't it? Because we've only got references to experiences that we have on earth. And then we kind of think of eternity as a sort of like extension of that experience forever. So it's really hard to illustrate. I mean, just think of it. Think about something that you currently find most pleasurable. I'll give you three seconds. And don't feel guilty, it can be good or bad. Most pleasurable. Now, think about that same thing, doing that same thing forever. Forever and ever and ever. It's the eternity that spoils it. You start off thinking, oh, this is going to be great. And then a little, bit while, a little while later, you think, geez, this is going to be a tedious. <laughs> It'll become a drag. No matter how amazing it is, it could not capture your attention for all of eternity. That's why I say it's so hard to describe what eternal life will be like, except to say this, to say what the Bible says about eternal life, that you will be perfectly satisfied in a way that will never grow old. 
Imagine pleasure that keeps you perfectly satisfied and never grows old. Hard to imagine what that is, but just imagine how it would feel. You'll experience joy that will not wane. You'll be perfectly satisfied in his presence forever. There, the Lord commanded the blessing. In that place, how, how, why are we feeling like this? Because we're in unity. We're feeling pleasure that will not wane. We're feeling joy that will not dissipate. And there is where the pres- that is where God commands his blessing, where God's people are, in God's place, and under God's rule. There. And that's what eternal life is like. This is the Zion that these pilgrims were looking forward to. This is the Zion that we look forward to, and it is the Zion that God asks us to reflect now in the way that we fellowship with each other and express the unity of the Trinity through our relationships with each other. This psalm points towards a future perfection, and it helps us with our current expression as as we, God's people, gather in local churches and are focused around God's Word. This unity in the Holy Spirit is so precious that it's worth giving up our own rights for. It's worth giving up our own preferences and pet peeves and cultural ideals and benefits and stature and reputation and honor. It's worthwhile giving up all of that to maintain this unity in the Holy Spirit that David points to in the psalm. And it's something that Paul urges us to do. It's not only pleasure for believers, but it's a message from God to those who don't believe. As we all gather together, each one committed to the truth in our hearts and minds, treasuring Christ above all else, we achieve a unity that is far greater than the uniformity that we see in the world. And that paints a picture of the Trinity for all to see. Matt, do you mind coming up with the band? <clears throat> the challenge in this is, is massive, and the application of, of those five points is as varied as, as we are. But the place to start is where we started this morning. Worship was amazing. It felt, like, it felt like the room was way fuller than it was. It felt like we were singing as one, praising our God for who He is. And the appropriate response to God is to do that, and that is where unity comes from. But I do have some challenges for you to consider in your day-to-day life. If you want to be more connected to people, you need to be more connected to God. If you need to belong, you need to serve. If you feel insecure, you need to be more vulnerable. These are difficult things, but it's worthwhile laying down your honor, your pride, your dignity for the sake of unity and finding that the body of Christ 
can play a part in your healing as you serve them and as you humble yourself with them. So let's, let's stand. And as we stand, ask yourself, what is your attitude to real-life church, to your local church? What is your attitude to your brothers and sisters? And what is your attitude to eternity even? Because that's the blessing that's promised for unity. Are you happy being unified with your brothers and sisters forever and ever? Can you grab hold of how that is, a, that is pleasurable? Hold those things in your mind. And Lord, as we come to you, we hold these, these attitudes, these thoughts, these ways of thinking. And Lord, we know they're not all good. We know that we are flawed, and, and if we're honest with ourselves, we find it very, very difficult to, to get over ourselves and to accept that that unity is, is worth sacrificing everything that we use to protect ourselves or, or feel valued. But Lord, we lift these up to you. And we bow our knees and we humble ourselves and we say, Lord, take them. We know that we cannot achieve unity ourselves. We know that there is absolutely no way we can, we can construct the in any way, shape, or form, but that we're completely at your mercy. And Holy Spirit, we pray for your oil to come down, your oil of anointing to come down on us as your people. Father God, that your dews of refreshing life will fall upon us as your people, and that we'll experience a little bit of what it will be like to be in your presence for all time that we'd know that we are one in Him. So Jesus Christ, come and have your way in our hearts and our minds as we give these things to you.